Good afternoon, you're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Half an hour of prose with occasional bits of poetry, although I wouldn't bet on it. Um, My researches into world literature throughout the centuries have taught me that many, many, many stories begin once upon a time. And this is no exception. Once upon a time... You dressed so fine, you threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? Well, no, you didn't. You should have. Mr Compton at the tweezer factory told you to, but you ignored him. You did worse than ignore him. You tipped his hat off his head and trod on it until it was crushed. And what did you do then? You kicked the crushed hat into the gutter with a sneer on your lips. And oh, how that sneer disfigured your face. It was an ugly sneer, and made of you an ugly person, something nobody had recognised until then. You, who had won the hearts of a multitude through your good works in the field of bird welfare. You, who had cradled crows in your arms, who had nursed an injured starling through three long days and nights. You who had fed droplets of rainwater to a hummingbird, who so delicately brushed the feathers of an ostrich which had food poisoning. You whose eyes lit up with glee when a flock of little bitterns soared across the blue, blue sky. You, the so-called cassowary man. For you to betray the faith so many had in you, to reveal your sinful heart by kicking Mr Compton's crushed hat into the gutter. And not just any gutter, but a foul, filthy, stinking gutter, greasy with slime. For you to do that shocked us all. Now you languish in a prison cell, accused of feckless acts and nincompoopery and Mr Compton lies buried in a distant, windswept graveyard. Oh, cassowary man, cassowary man, we can never forgive you. Um, I said there may or may not be poetry, and I've decided, you know, that there will be. This is called The Life and Times of Captain Cake. All hands on deck, cried Captain Cake. He looked so much like Lawrence Welk. His crew were grim. They played ping-pong on the poop deck with spite and hate. But Captain Cake, he hacked and choked and took his buckets to shops on shore where he saw Tallulah Bankhead. She was a card sharp in the dockyards. Now Captain Cake had gone to seed. He looked as if he had been cursed by some bright-fanged Aztec god. I think it might be called a Braxus, either that or Myrna Loy, whose face loomed huge when he shut his eyes. Racked by palsy, his hands were withered, and all his timbers had been shivered.
The Life and Loves of the Immersion Man. <clears throat> Excuse me, just clearing my throat. The Man with the Hammers. The Man with the Flags. He has a second pair of shoes. He bought them in Blister Lane. He had them repaired. His head is the same size as two of anyone else's head, or a few pounds of oranges, plums, or other fruit. It will take years. Once he had decided to paint his ship with stolen paint, he could not look back. The ship, when painted, would be burnt sienna in colour, stains apart. What a long ship it was, and is, and will be. It had sailed from shore to shore. He held sway at the helm and on deck. He spat plum stones into his flask. Much later, he knew, they would be crushed, liquefied, in his blender, in his kitchen, in his other hut, the hut he had built at the docks, for those mornings when he did not set sail on his ship to reach some other shore where he had other huts. In weather so suitable for breakfast on a lawn, eighteen bowls of special K and a jellied, jellied eel, he would ram the oars home, force them into the muck so they were perpendicular, not far away from the tallest of the six trees, which were poplars or larches or even yews. Oars fixed in place, he will paint them, the oars, with the delicate bristles of his Coddington brush. Its wooden handle has seen better days, particularly the days in Jutland, Scheveningen, Reykjavik, other landmarks of or near Scandinavia. Those were the days before he was pulled towards the seas. Who pulled him to the seas? Who made his flag? Who made his shoes? Ah, that I cannot say, not yet. The kettle maps were stacked in a rough wooden crate. The crate had been painted. Butter had been kept in this crate. Butter used in the sandwiches he had eaten at half-time in all those pole vaulting or archery competitions he had entered. They had struck a medal for him, he was so keen. He had lost the medal. It was made of zinc. It had fallen out of his pocket in March. Deep snow lay on the ground. He remembered the day well, because he had to. It was potato day. The village wrestler, the one with the goiter, had a big iron pot of gruel and slops, as he always did. No one knew how old he was, but his birthday parties were marked by rectitude and spasms. He was extremely tall. He had to stoop to enter his own house. It was a squalid house. It stank of vinegar. This wrestler was wont to sing remarkable songs as he sat on the jetty, dangling his feet in the brackish water. For many years he had tended his broken nose, applying a new set of bandages every day. He used bright red bandages, having smeared them first with ink or ointment. The bottles were identical and kept on the same shelf. The shelf was made of plastic, but it sloped towards the left. Nothing heavier than two small bottles or some corks could be kept on it. He brushed his hair. The lake was hidden by trees a mile away from haemoglobin towers. For a thousand years the lake looked blue. 
One day, when he was famished, he swam there. He wore water wings, rubber ones, and yellow. He had to inflate them with his perfumed breath. It took all morning. By noon, he was exhausted. Later, stealthily, he crept by torchlight to the moorings. They had been varnished so thoroughly that he slipped and fell. No bones were broken. But Pang Hill was no longer his home, nor could it ever be so, not while he wore such preposterous trousers. Eating jam by the spoonful, he watched the branch give way. It fell to the ground. He was wearing tiny sandals, three sizes too small. The stitching was coming loose on both of them, and not before time. The man with the clarinets had arrived. He sprang to his feet, on legs. They mucked about with each other's pencil sharpeners all day. An ailing vulture circled overhead. It had splendid musculature, or thought it did. Below, on the pebbles, they donned skin-diving equipment. The pub was shut. The landlord had rouge ears underneath his hair. He carried a selection of bats, pails, needles and vicuna nets. These he patted with yearning. His one foot was shod in an enemy's shoe, a token of combat. It had a vulgar reek, but squashed ants and earwigs on the paving slabs with the best of them. This was called Hack Slot B. It meant so much, or it meant nothing, he was not sure. Long ago, he had become entangled in the waterlogged corridors of the big, damp building, and now there was no escape. The magnificence of it was breathtaking. It had taken centuries to build, but only last year was the tin bath warehouse added on. He spat in it and kept on spitting. He was unable to stop himself. Feathers sprouted but did not grow. They were spindly and vicious. He could no longer remember how to speak Hungarian, if he ever knew. His boxer shorts were blue from Budapest. There is a reason for everything, but not for food. Food must be speared with big tin forks. Or so he thought. He poked at the plankton with his fork. The plate had been smashed. It was in bits on the linoleum. He intended to take up athletics. They would wrap him in flowers and other greenery, and all because he had ruined his crayons when he was a tot. He was wicked, wicked, and he went on a cruise. The cruise took him north, then it took him west. He was not sure which coinage to use. He had some change in his little pockets. It weighed so much he had to trudge. After careful planning, he set fire to all the maps. He put the cartons to one side. They would be useful to him later on, if at all. But it was time to hold a grudge. He lighted upon a fishmonger and wrapped him on the nose with a fountain pen. Maroon ink spurted out onto the fishmonger's mouth and chin. He had lockjaw and some pianos. Where did he keep his pianos? They sent a detective to find out. One day, he would brandish despicable wooden things inside his tent. It was a famous tent, but age had frayed it. It was decorated with a boa constrictor motif lacquered in mauve. He came upon it on a mountain top. He hurled it into a sand pit. 
His skull was perfectly formed and bright blue. There had been much talk of this in thousands of corridors and on horseback. All the fruit had been chewed. He checked his dictionary for errors. Under B he found plenty. He pasted them up, threw back his head, extricated some tacks from the hardboard and shoved them into an envelope. This was stylish. He sat by the big clock. His sister arrived. She was an emigre. She'd buried three or four pelicans or yaks near a factory. That had to be the factory. This must be an ambulance. Its bleepers are off pitch and ungodly. Bundled inside a blanket, she sported a mask, half of it carved out of mahogany and the rest out of something metallic. Delicate traceries of bip lay smeared on the gasworks, for this was Raymond's village. His dubbin was better than the rest. He had come this far and had no sandwiches left. He was in agony. Darning the beekeeping outfit had been no laughing matter. The reek of sandalwood and lavender was in the air. He was penniless. Wearing an altimeter instead of a wristwatch, he careered along the towpath of the canal. The immersion man was on his way. I think if you um, careful study of the piece I've just read will divulge that there's a hidden meaning there which can be eked out. Anyway, onwards, um, an item about Dobson. Dobson was one of the few pamphleteers of the 20th century who still took seriously the medieval theory of the four bodily humours. To remind listeners who've forgotten and inform those who don't know, here's a commendably concise paragraph from Humorous Dobson, an unpublished essay by Marigold Chu. I quote, Taking the Aristotelian elements in turn, the theory was as follows. Earth is reflected in the body as black bile, air as yellow bile, fire as blood, and water as phlegm. From these derive the terms melancholic, choleric, sanguine and phlegmatic. Dobson never deviated from his belief that the theory was fundamentally correct. He tended towards melancholy. End of quote. And it should be said, he was so convinced that he, was, that he also subscribed to the related practice of bloodletting with leeches. Dobson was rarely ill, but when he was, he had a devil of a time trying to find a doctor who would treat him as he wished. On his 61st birthday, suffering from an excess of black bile, he was in luck, or so he thought. An alternative therapist had opened their doors just down the road. Dobson presented himself and demanded leeching. He was shown into a back room, and lo, leeches were applied to his spindly legs. 
Unfortunately, the quack used leeches of the genus Helobdala glossophenonidae rather than Hirudo medicinalis. The latter is, as its name implies, the medicinal leech. It is a quaint, dark cylinder which has 33 body rings, 5 pairs of eyes, several pairs of testes and two suckers, one at each end of its body. The head sucker searches and penetrates while the tail sucker holds fast to the host. The result of the wrong type of leech being used was so vile that I shall not repeat it here. Dobson was lucky to survive, but he did, thank the Lord. If you decide to have your blood sucked by leeches, take with you an anatomical diagram of Hirudo medicinalis. You will be able to check that your practitioner is using the correct type of leech and can rest easy. Um, I thought I would read you a list of upcoming films on television. All of these films are um, going to be on some channel or other over the next week. Rusty Flasks, The Apothecary's Safety Pin, The Subfusk Gargoyle, Hand Me That Chaffinch, Topiary and Miscegenation, the Gutter Percher Pale, The Vivid Swamp, which for me is Barbara Streisand's finest hour, The Pitiful Teacup, To Smooch and Smooch Again, The Baleful Rhinoceros, 400 Wooden Hens, Plankton Nightmare. I particularly like the grainy black and white opening shot of a flock of bitterns. The Crumpled Ships, The Queasy Hotel, Spooky, The Pathetic Ornithologist, The Flapping Windsock, Ointments of Incomprehensibility, I Wore My Hats Ineptly, Custard Gas Attack, Flailing Shibboleths, Journey to the Planet of Indigestion, the Wretched Spoon, a placebo for Istvan, the Hideous Orchard, the Marooned Squirrel, surely the film of the decade, pencil cases in the Antarctic, thousands upon thousands of wrens, the Pointless Torch, Corn Crake, Mel Gibson's Braveheart pales in comparison, said Vanity Fair. The Tatterdemalion Hobbledehoy, which ought to have won a prize for its matchless animal handling, what with all those stoats, weasels, bison, panthers and geese. The Big Magnetic Robot. The Antiseptic Xylophone. Snip Those Oban Locks. I Was Puny Vershangetherix. The Chuckling Maniac.
an appalling film, not a bit scary. The Cantankerous Optician. Jimmy Connors in Hell. Nothing to do with the tennis player, apparently. Forty Years in a Balksite Mine. My favourite foreign language film of the year, despite the lack of subtitles. The Ridiculous Sponge. Rubber Beelzebub. Tea Strainers in Jeopardy. The Tall Nun Goes West, the finest Gerard Manley Hopkins adaptation I've ever seen. Stalin Wore a Cardigan, Ornate and Lavish Boys, that's B-U-O-Y-S. I think in America they call them buoys or something. Um, The Tiny Cakes, The Incredible Case of the Disparaged Chutney Recipe, Splendid Muck, and Weird Birds, which is a remake of the Van Heflin masterpiece. This is a story called The File of Broth, or The End of C.W. Sprang. Few people alive today remember the highly entertaining music hall act Gwesbaldo Sopwith and his amazing tea strainers. Sopwith, real name Cedric William Sprang, was born in the damp building at Hooting Yard in 1807, and though his parents dragged him off a circusing before he could even walk, he always recalled his birthplace with affection. At the turn of the century, when his popularity was at its height, Sopwith returned to Hooting Yard for the first time since infancy to put on a Christmas show for the bewildered and the fraught. The show was, of course, a tremendous success, and so thrilled were the burlap-shanked mayoral officers of the town that they threw an impromptu banquet for Sopwith. A tent was erected over the ice rink, the rink itself covered in tough cork matting, and trestle tables were carried in, piled high with such delicacies as were available in Hooting Yard at that time. Sopwith, 97 years old, was ushered to a seat at the top table, and a hush descended on the tent as the first course was brought in by the Hooting Yard duck pond cleaner, a man whose name was Cackbag. This geriatric half-wit carried a capacious tureen containing gallons upon gallons of an iridescent broth flavoured with pap, rime and bone meal, and reportedly thoroughly indigestible. Cackbag slopped a ladle full of the broth into Sopwith's rusty bowl, and the majestic entertainer was about to spoon some of the piping hot liquid into his mouth, when of a sudden the tent was filled with cataclasm and pandemonium. Cedric William sprang! The words rang out, re-echoing around the canvas walls. Tundists have come for you! We will take you now! Poor Sopwith, ashen, trembling and incontinent, 
could do, could do little else but to obey the bidding of the unseen tundists. As bolts of purple light spurted around the tent and mesmerising noises deafened the townsfolk, he crawled to the entrance flap, a piteous figure on his hands and knees. As soon as he was through the flap, the uproar ceased, the tent interior calmed, the air grew still. Clamour and rack were no more, but Cedric William Sprang, alias Guesbaldo Sopwith, was gone. Like so many others, he had been taken by the Tundists. Who knows why, or to what end? Like all who fell foul of Tundism, he was never seen on earth again. His tea strainers, amazing though they may have been, were disposed of through a public auction on the first anniversary of his vanishment. All his other personal effects were sold off, burned, cast into canals, or donated to educational institutions for tiny ones. All that is, except for one item. The banquet was abandoned. The the banquet. The banquet was abandoned after the tundists had fallen upon the tent. Small urchins were plucked from the gutters to clear everything away, and were given the uneaten food as a reward. One such urchin, who earlier that day had been held entranced by the Amazing Tea Strainers Act, was so upset by the disappearance of Sopwith that he carried the bowl of unslurped broth away with him under his sordid tunic as a trophy. He kept it at home in his infected hut until it began to moulder and stink out even this most noisome of hovels, whereupon he took it to an apothecary, who very carefully encased what was left of the broth in a glass phial, the very phial which is today found underneath the water pipes in the janitor's cupboard next to the boiler room in the basement of the museum at Hooting Yard, where it can be viewed by appointment only. We had an anecdote about Dobson, and so really, um, to be fair, we should also have an anecdote about Blodgett. Um, This begins rather suddenly. The next day all hell broke loose. Early in the morning, as Blodgett polished the outside spigots, an ogre or wild man hove into view atop the southern hills. Its progress towards the house was implacable, It stamped through the bracken, vaulted the ha-ha with a single bound, negotiated the massive basalt wall with surprising elegance, and sprang towards the terrified blodget, whirling its hirsute arms alarmingly and making disgusting guttural noises. It was matted with filth. Flies, gnats and tiny things emitting poisonous goo crawled all over its flesh. It seemed to be decomposing. It drooled. It picked up Blodgett, sank its fangs into his skull and hurled him aside. Pausing momentarily to spit out particles of Blodgett's head, it smashed its way through the wall of the house, oblivious to the fact that there was an ajar door three feet to its right. 
Once inside the house, its rage seemed to increase. It rushed wildly from room to room, obliterating the furniture, tearing up floorboards, destroying chandeliers, bashing holes into walls and ceilings, sucking the wallpaper off the walls. It chewed up banister rails and regurgitated them, disgorging them with such force that each rail acted as a lethal projectile. Five minutes after the ogre's arrival, much of the lower part of the house lay in ruins. Small fires were starting, but they were doused by water spurting from uprooted taps. It came into the bittern room. It let out an inhuman cry. It picked at its sores. It became becalmed. "'Thank heaven you have come,' said Jubble. "'You must meet my dear friend, Detective Captain Unstrebnodtaub. He comes from a far country, and his brain is hot.' And that's the end of Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it and um, thoroughly digested all that. And I'll be back with some more stuff for you next week. Bye-bye.